All right, today we are continuing in chapter 3 of the book of James. Again, we're continuing in chapter 3 of the book of James, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 12. So if you turn there with me, James 3, 2 through 12. And sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So the, right, the children's rhyme goes, but if we have lived at a at all very long in this world we know that that's not true sticks and stones will break our bones and words do hurt words can uh, cut us deeper than a jagged branch they can wound us more than a broken bone Uh, sometimes the deepest and most lasting wounds are not the scraped knees and sprained ankles and broken bones, but they are the hurts caused by words. And those hurtful words may hurt because they are true. Right? Sometimes words hurt because they're true, and we know they're true, and we don't want them to be true. Sometimes they may hurt because they reveal the betrayal of confidences, of of, um, the, the betrayal that a friend may give unto us, Because they let something spill of our secrets, of something we entrusted to them. Uh, They may hurt because they're untrue, right? Sometimes words hurt and they're untrue. We know they're untrue, but nonetheless, they still hurt. And sometimes uh, words are spoken from an incomplete perspective, right? The other person doesn't know the whole story, and yet they still speak, and they speak words that hurt. Words are important. Our words matter. And James wants to instruct us today that the Christian ought wholeheartedly use words to build up. The Christian ought wholeheartedly use words to build up. So let's look at our passage. Uh, Let's turn there. James 3, starting in verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of a pirate pilot directs. Uh, so also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. 
James 3 uh, opens up in verse 1 uh, talking about the, the judgment of teachers, right? Discussing the greater, the stricter judgment that will come upon teachers and James uses that as a as a catalyst as as the start to this greater discussion on the on this issue of tongues on the issue of our speech our words and he writes there in verse 1 not many should become teachers because of that stricter judgment because a teacher speaks a lot and when a teacher speaks he opens himself up for the judgment of god and in our discussion on that verse and in verse 2 last week, uh, we discussed how uh, this is not just a passage on teaching, right? This is not just a passage for teachers, uh, but this is an issue for the whole church. Some commentators uh, look at this and say that this whole passage that we looked at, verses 1 through 12, that this is really just about teachers. Uh, but if we look at the language closely, I think we... We find, and uh, my position would be, you know, this is about the whole church. This is the broader church here. This is about you, Christian. If you are in Christ Jesus, these verses are for you and for your consideration today. So, James is instructing all believers, not just teachers. And we come to our passage today, and we, we have to understand it in that context. Uh, we need to heed this as teachers. If you're a teacher, you need to heed what is said here in these verses. But if you're a Christian, you too need to heed what is said. But let's see first the perfect man. The perfect man, that's first uh, in verse 2. And James says, for we all stumble in many ways. Right? For we all. Again, that's all of us within the church. We all stumble. Uh, stumble in many ways. And that, that word many ways, that phrase many ways, is, is probably not just quantity, mere quantity, but all various kinds. If you remember back in chapter one, uh, we have trials of various kinds, right? Different kinds of trials. And I think here we see this uh, similar idea. We have different kinds of stumbling. And what is stumbling? It's, it's sinful failure. It's transgression. It's iniquity. It's uh, forsaking obedience to God. It's disobedience to God. Rebellion. All these many ways that we can describe the same thing, right? Stumbling. Uh, and we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. So we can kind of get this idea what, what James is, what James is giving us, right? Is this hypothetical? If there is a man who doesn't stumble in what he says, doesn't sin in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. And we're going to build the case as we go along here that if we can stop our tongue, if we are disciplined enough in our words, in our speech, the rest of it is easy, right? Comparatively, the rest of it is easy because our words set the direction, the course of our life. We can stop ourselves from, and, 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 and right, we, we kind of get this a little bit just here at the outset. Think about this, right? We can stop ourselves from acting on our sinful inclinations much easier than we can stop ourselves from saying something sinful. Right, you, you can have some self-discipline and stop yourself from sinning. But it's often a lot harder to stop yourself from saying something sinful. Right, sinful words come quick. As an example, what I want you to do this afternoon is go stub your toe on something. And what words come to your lips? Is it something that praises God? 
If someone pulls out in front of you while you're driving, how quick are you to speak evil words? How quick we are to speak in haste. How quick we are to grumble and complain. Right? So that's, that's what we see here. The perfect man though, right? The perfect man, the wholehearted man, the man who is complete controls his tongue. He controls his speech. He disciplines his mouth. And if he's able to do that, again, compare, by comparison, the rest of it is easy. He's much easier. If he can discipline his mouth, he can discipline his body. That's what James is saying here, right? And James has already written in chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he's already talked about this issue of the tongue. And as we come into it here in chapter 3, we have to underscore this, that the tongue sets the course of our soul. The tongue sets the course of our soul. Because with our tongue, we call upon the name of the Lord and our saved. We confess the, the name of Jesus and are saved. Or with our tongue, we confess the works of the evil one. And if our tongue obeys us not, if we let it spew such evils as it might, it might well mean that we have a worthless religion, as he says, James says in verse 26 of chapter 1. The tongue sets the course of our soul, and the Christian ought wholeheartedly to use words to build up. And that's what it's meant to be religious. We use our words for right purposes. Or as here in our passage, we use our words and are perfect or complete or wholehearted. So let's continue in our passage uh, and see how exactly uh, James describes the, the tongue setting the course of our soul. And we'll see next the uncontrolled boasts in verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. The uncontrolled boasts. And he gives this, he starts to give us some imagery. And that's one of the reasons we like the book of James, right? Is there's lots of imagery to help us understand the things that he is talking about. There's lots of imagery to, uh, to give us this mental picture of what he's talking about. And so we begin with some imagery. And he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And one of the reasons James is using this imagery, he's starting with this application imagery, is because we may ask the question, does our speech really matter that much, right? I just really built up and said that the tongue sets the course of our soul. Is that true or not? And James understands his readers are asking the same question because we want to know, is it really true or not? Does it matter whether we control our tongue or not. And so we see the, the answer to this uh, question, and he uses imagery. He says we put bits in the mouths of horses, right? We, we put the little controlling bit, we put on a bridle, uh, we, we get reins, and what do we do? We control the whole horse. And think about the power of a horse. Right, nowadays we have... Uh, greater, more powerful beasts of burden, right? Cars, vehicles, trucks. And we could maybe think about a, a little bit 
we wanted to uh, pull it into the modern world here, we have a little steering wheel. And it controls this big, powerful vehicle. Right? Wherever it goes. We want it to go wherever it goes. Does the car drive itself? Well, maybe maybe, maybe some modern, right? It's turning, turning a little bit. But then even that, we have some programmer behind the scenes writing these little bits of code that direct wherever the car goes. So this little tiny thing controls this big, powerful thing. Right? Horses are big, powerful creatures, and yet these little tiny pieces are, can control them, can guide and direct them. We guide their whole bodies. Right? Or look at the ships also, right? The, the second imagery here, look at the ships. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, fierce winds, right? Think about this, that how, how much wind just pushes against the sails and and moves that ship. They are yet guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Right? They're, they're these large, powerful, heavy vessels that can carry a lot of cargo because what James has in mind here, right, isn't a little John boat. We're not getting out in a little, little canoe. Uh, we're talking about a ship, a vessel. Uh, we're talking about something uh, that those sailing ships that made commerce and control possible back in the day that James is writing. Right? In our day, uh, though they're not driven by the wind, we can think of cruise ships. Have you ever, like, seen a cruise ship in person? Right? It's massive, huge vessel. Or think of uh, ships of war. Right? A destroyer or an air carrier, uh, aircraft carrier. These are massive vessels. And what directs them where the pilot wants them to go? Little tiny rudder. If you would take a uh, if you would sabotage the rudder, destroy it from the vessel, what good would the vessel be? Right? Because what would happen? It'd be something like out of uh, the movie Speed Two, where the boat just like crashes onto the land. That's a that's an old timey reference for you there. That's a, I wouldn't probably recommend watching it because I doubt it's a very good movie, but. Uh, but right, what happens? What what happens with a ship without a rudder is it it's useless, right? It can't do what you want it to do. It goes in a straight line, or maybe it's stuck going around in circles, depending on if the rudder's broken or not, right? But it's this little tiny thing that, in compared to the massiveness of the ship, controls it. The tiny rudder points it in this direction or that. And James actually introduces another idea here, right? With the, with the bit in the, uh, of the horse, the bit in the horse's mouth that controls. But here we also have a pilot. And a pilot has a desire or will. And that's how the ship goes, right? There's someone at the wheel of the, of the ship saying, I want it to go that way. And maybe there's someone behind the pilot saying, I want you to have it go that way. Right? But there's a will, there's a desire involved. And again, think about this in the context of what we're talking about. How big is a pilot compared to the ship? Tiny, right? A speck. And again, in modern vessels, the pilot is probably smaller than the rudder. Because the rudder has to be massive to turn the ship in comparison to the pilot. But the rudder is still tiny in comparison to the whole of the ship. 
And there's a will involved. There's a decision, a direction. So also, James says in the first part of verse 5, so also, here's the conclusion, therefore, so also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James draws this conclusion for us. The tongue is micro, but the effect is mega. And that's a little bit of the Greek behind the scenes of what's going on here, right? That's what he says. The, the tongue is micro, but the effect is mega. The tongue is a small thing, right? It's, it's a small part of the body. Uh, ounce to ounce, it's small. Size and dimension, it's small, right? Compared to an arm or leg, it's small. There's some heft to the arm and the leg, and it's not like the whole head. And some of you know the heft of a head, right? It's small. It's, it's a little part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things, or as the Net Bible says, yet it has great pretensions, and this word boasting can be used neutrally. Uh, it can have a neutral connotation to it. But typically what we see in the New Testament, whenever we see the word boast, it's typically a bad thing. It's typically a negative thing. Again, there are some instances, but it's typically a, a negative thing. And in just a little while, actually, James will write in James chapter 4, 13 through 16, James 4, 13 through 16, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, we will do this or that as it is. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So when we come to this word in James here, it, it seems to be negative, right? So it, it boasts in great things. That is, it, it, it boasts in evil things. It's an evil thing, this tongue. It does great evil. To boast in your own life, to boast in your own bid, ability is utter foolishness because you don't know what your life is. And so, too, this little member of the body it boasts in great things, has great potentials, but it doesn't know what it is. This little member of the body, the tongue, has outsized impact on the course of our life. And the question at this juncture must be, what kind of impact does your tongue have on your life? How is your mouth, how is, how is your speech, how is your words directing the course of your life? Where are your words leading you? Because be assured of this, just as the bit controls the horse and the rudder controls the ship, so too your tongue controls you. And so it is that the person who has mastered the tongue, as James writes in verse 2, must surely have mastered his whole body, right? If the bit can control the horse... The tongue can control the body. But let's press deeper into this, continue to see this imagery that James is using to underscore his point. Let's see, thirdly, the poisonous fire. The poisonous fire in the second part of verse 5 through verse 8. The poisonous fire. And James says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And he, right, we have this, Another picture here, fire, the, the tongue is a fire, and we'll see that especially in verse uh, 6, right? 
And the forest, though, here, uh, probably in view, is probably something like the desert scrubland of Palestine. So this isn't like giant fir trees. Uh, this isn't tree farm uh, trees that are being burnt down. This is probably bushes and scrub and, and, and little plants that cover the hills of Palestine. It's a dry affair. It's probably something reminiscent if you go out west and you look at the deserts. Uh, there are scrublands, right? So, so they still have some bushes, some, some greenery, but it's mostly dry and certainly no big trees. And what he says here is, right, how great, how great a forest, how large a forest, how mega a forest is consumed by a small fire. And this is a picture that we can understand because, again, we consider out west uh, every summer what happens. Massive forest fires that are cause for great concern. And how do those massive forest fires start? A spark, right? A little flame, a little ember, right? It's not like you wake up one day and all of a sudden every single tree in front of you uh, spontaneously combusts. Right? That's not how those fires work. What happens maybe is a down power line, a, a lightning bolt, a careless hiker who doesn't put out his campfire well enough. Right? This little tiny thing, and it consumes large tracts of land. It puts in danger the, the lives of people. It destroys houses and communities and cities. Right? This is, this is what happens. With a small flame, how great a forest is set ablaze. And the tongue is a fire. James says here, right? Yes, yes, really, the tongue is a fire. Let me speak more directly, he says, right? The tongue is a fire. It is this fire that can destroy much. The second part of this verse uh, that we see after, and the tongue is a fire, uh, it's a little bit difficult to translate. The Greek here is harder to render. Uh, the ESV is one attempt at that. Uh, another view more popular among commentators and translators is something like that rendered by the Net Bible, and so I'll read that for us. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence and is set on fire by hell. So there's a little bit of difference, right? Translators have a little bit of difference in, in, in understanding this. But what does James' point seem to be? Well, he says here that the tongue is a fire that stains our soul. In our words, there is so much evil. And consider... The evil that words can produce. With our tongue, we lie. We tell falsehoods. Right? We bear false witness. We sin against God and others by using our words for false purposes. And understand that such is evil. Why is lying evil? Because every word of God is true. Do you understand that? God never lies. No word of God is ever untrue. And as God is, so we are to be. Right? He has created us for that, though we rebelled against Him. 
God always uses His words for truth, and He is our standard. And that's something we really need to grasp. Right? God is our standard. Not our friends, not our family, not the world around us. When we consider the level of holiness to which we must strive, we are not comparing ourselves to the person sitting next to us. We are comparing ourselves against the standard. And why do we do that? Because it's the standard. Right? That's why we have silly things. If, and if you've ever heard about this, uh, you might think it's silly. Uh, we have uh, departments within our government that set standards. And they bear the standard. Uh, they even have physical representations of the standard. That they have a standard measuring stick. And every other measuring stick should be measured against that standard. Why? Because it sets the standard. Because sometimes as we uh, produce something, little errors can crop up. Little omissions. And maybe that yardstick suddenly becomes a little bit more than a yard. And if you measure that every other yardstick against that errored measuring stick, what happens? Well, suddenly the, the meaning of yard changes, doesn't it? Suddenly when you go, to the, uh, you go to the fabric store and you ask for a yard of fabric, you get a little bit more than a yard of fabric, which is good for you as the consumer, but bad for you, bad for you as the business owner. So we can see how this works, right? We have to be measured against the standard. God is our standard and his words are always used for truth but we use our words for evil, to tell lies, to speak falsehoods, and understand that it's even in the simple things, right? Uh, I've given this example before, I think, but sometimes at work, um, someone will call in asking for someone, and the person they're asking for doesn't want to take the call for whatever reason. And I have one coworker who likes to tell me stories to tell the people on the phone about why they can't answer the call. And I know that the story's a lie. And so it's, you want to, you want me to lie to them for you. And so I pick up the phone. I say they're unavailable, right? Which is true. That's not, they're unavailable. They're not, they're not available to speak to you right now. No story needed. Same effect granted, right? But even something simple as that. Are we going to, are we going to speak the truth or are we going to lie? God uses his words for truth. He's our standard. Uh, added to this, the, the evils of our tongue are gossiping and rumor mongering, right? These are, these are evil things. And understand that even sometimes with gossiping, right? It's about true things about a person. Sometimes it can be true things about somebody, but it's told in not a way that should be told. So we can even speak true things with evil intent for evil purposes. For the purpose of hurting others. And there are times when the truth may hurt, right? To be told that we are wicked sinners who deserve the everlasting wrath of God, that hurts. It doesn't feel good to be told that we are evil in our very nature, that we are corrupt to our very core. Or to say, as David says uh, in the Psalms, in sin my mother conceived me. 
That's not to say that his mother was sexually immoral. That's to say something of him, his state. When he was even unborn, he was conceived and he was evil. It hurts to hear that. It stings to be told that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But these wounding words are used for healing. The good news isn't good news without the bad news. The surgeon must wound to excise offending tissue. But if the surgeon just cuts for fun, for his own design and purpose, that's evil, right? And in this uh, this aspect, I was... I was thinking of um, the stories you hear sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes, of a surgeon who cuts his initials into the organs of his patients. And that's an evil, right? And it's right when they are punished, when they are removed from the practice of medicine, when they are fined and put in jail. Because we understand that that's evil, right? That's not the purpose of a surgeon, isn't to go around and leaving your initials in the in your patients like some kind of uh, calling card or some kind of, hey, look at me, aren't I cool? Right? We understand that the surgeon has failed his, in his duties. He has committed evil. So too, if we use our words to cut and wound for evil purposes, for our own purposes, we sin. When we talk about the evils of the tongue, we must also include those words used to boast of great pretensions. When we pridefully boast of ourselves, when we exalt ourselves, we commit evil. When we use our words to exalt ourselves, we commit evil. Because there is only one who ought to be exalted. God. Right? We ought humbly speak of ourselves. But not so with this polluting tongue. Right? It is, it's a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members and stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. God commands words be true. God commands words be love. Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ Jesus. Right? Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's Ephesians 4.25. Having put away falsehood, put away the lies, and speak the truth. Or 1 John 3.18. 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I find that an interesting one there because... We say, let us not love in word. Well, we shouldn't love in word. No, we shouldn't love in word alone. But in deed and in truth. If you say you love someone, if there are just words that you shout against the air, that's not speaking the truth. Because true love produces action. Always. Right? Love in deed and in truth. So speak truly. Improve the truth of your words by your actions. Do you see then how this little thing, the, the tongue sets the whole course of a human existence on fire? From our birth to our death, we are caught in a snare by the use of our words. And not only that, but he says, James here says, right? And set on fire by hell. It's set on fire by hell. And the word hell there is the Greek Gehenna. 
We may know that from the words of Jesus. And the reason I note that is, as one commentator notes about this use of this word, is that Jesus is alone the one in the New Testament that uses it. And so James betrays his reliance on the words of Jesus. So when we ask ourselves, how is James related to the words of Jesus? We see imprinted again and again, both in the language and what he is saying and also in what he means by it, right? What he is calling us to, that these things are from what Jesus has spoken about. And it's important to note because uh, there's very few direct references to Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that James isn't a Christian, a follower of Christ. We see the language throughout. So, and it seems to be what James means here, it's set on fire by hell, it's set on fire by hell itself, is that that the, that the, the course of the, our life, the, the use of our tongue, is influenced, is directed from hell, from the evil one. Right? He puts those words into our mind to speak. And we know that he is the father of lies. Uh, Jesus remarks to those Pharisees harping on him in Matthew 15. Uh, in Matthew 15, his disciples are not following the traditions of the elders. They're washing with unclean hands. They, you know, they didn't do their pur- purification ritual to, to wash their hands before they eat. We see this a couple times in the Gospels. And on this one occasion, Jesus responds in verse 11 of chapter 15, Matthew 15, 11, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Listen to this. It's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person. Not because you ate a piece of bacon that you are defiled. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And he continues on in 18 and 20 to describe this, right? 18 and 20 of Matthew 15. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Right? Defilement comes from within, not from some external source. The problem is not that we sin. Though that is a problem. The bigger problem is that we are sinners. That something deeper within us produces the sin and thought and word and deed. If you are in Christ Jesus, then your speech should be used to build up. It should be used uh, to speak the truth in love. It should be true. It should be for good. And do you see then, Christian, the great problem with your tongue? Do you yet feel the weight of what your words get you? Do you think that this it is a little thing, this tongue of yours? Let's continue. Verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea, tree, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Right, beast, bird, reptile, sea creature, and it seems to seems to follow the pattern that we see in Genesis of the creation. Right, so so what James is kind of hinting at here is that all of creation has been tamed by mankind. Right, all all the animals, all the creatures of this world have been tamed by mankind. Every kind of creature has been tamed. 
Now, how greatly tamed, right? We're not maybe talking about the whole species, though we have done that with some. Right? All kinds of creatures have been tamed. We can put them in cages. Uh, we can make the bear dance on a ball. I don't know if that's ever anything real that happened, but right? That's the idea, right? Or we can make the elephant balance on a ball, and I, I have seen something like that before with the circus. Although the circus is a no-no these days because, you know, animal rights. Right? All sorts of creatures have been tamed by mankind. But look at verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. Uh, the NASB here renders this no one, no one can tame the tongue. But I think that misses a little bit of the strength of what James is saying. Because the word for one, no one, right? Uh, one there or human being that we have in the ESV is anthropos, which is the word for, the Greek word for man. So the under, the emphasis is this. Mankind has, has tamed all these creatures, but mankind can't tame the tongue. Uh, Augustine comments here on this that uh, he does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no one of me, no kind of me can tame the tongue. So that when it is tamed, we confess that this is brought about by the pity, the help, the grace of God. And so David prays in Psalm 141, verse 3, Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. For the tongue is a restless evil. It is a restless evil. And this word restless is the same one we see in chapter 1 when we talked about the double-minded man who prays for wisdom but doubts that God will give the wisdom he prays for. He's a double-minded man and he's unstable in all his ways. And that word unstable is the same here as restless. right? It's this idea of double-mindedness, a double-tongueness, right? It's this idea of someone who is unhinged and unable. This thing of the tongue is an unstable evil. It's full of poison, right? It's a bitter thing. It's full of deadly poison. Again, it wounds and cuts to what end? To kill, to murder, to destroy. And again, maybe we've, we've felt that before uh, in our own lives or someone against us. Words spoken in hate. What were those words used for? To destroy, to kill, to murder, to cut down, to drive us to maybe kill ourselves as we see far too often in uh, school settings. It's full of poison. It's this bitter thing. Psalm 140, verse 3. Psalm 140, verse 3 says, They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. And if that sounds familiar, because Paul uses that in Romans chapter 3 to talk about the total depravity of mankind, right? That every aspect, every every part of our life is opposed to God outside of the grace of God. And that's the nature of our tongues if we are honest and we speak truly. And if we doubt the poisonous fire in our tongues, the next section, the bitter fount, will help to cement this idea. The bitter fount in verses 9 through 12. So lastly, the bitter fount, 9 through 12. 
Because with it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Right? We, that's what we've been doing here today. Right? Blessing God, praising God, worshiping God. We, we are using our tongue to glorify our Creator. We use it as we should. But he continues. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. But with it we also curse those who are made in the image of God. We call out evil on others who are God's image bearers. We speak words to destroy others. We call out to God to destroy those whom He has created. And here I'm reminded of the story of Jonah, which we've just recently concluded in Bible study. Right? What did he want for the people of Nineveh? Their destruction. God purposed that he would have mercy and compassion on them, but what did Jonah want his words to do? To destroy to bring them to ruin those who were created in the image of God. And maybe then we see part of the evil of Jonah's attitude. From the same mouth in verse 10 here in James, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, these things ought not to be so. These things, church, these dual uses of our mouth, these dual uses of our words, they ought not be. It should not be that we bless and curse with our mouths ever. Consider the heaviness of this truth. Consider the heaviness of this question. How long will it take you to leave from our time together here and to curse another person created in God's image. How long will it take you? And you may protest and say, well, that person had it coming. You don't know the type of person they are. They deserve the curses I give to them. They deserve that I cut them down and destroy them with my words. You don't understand how that person made me feel. And so I responded in like kind. Or you don't understand how irritating my brother is. He deserves to be cut down a little. It's wrong when others sin. Make no mistake about that, right? It's wrong when others sin. But others' sin does not give us license to sin. Just because someone else sin doesn't mean that we respond with sin. We have no right to it. And more than that, you fail to understand that you are in the presence of a holy God. Consider Isaiah, the prophet of God, out of Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, it's, it's probably a familiar passage with us, but I want us to focus on this issue of our tongues, of our words, our speech. And I would also just like to point out, this is in chapter 6. Isaiah doesn't receive his call to ministry. He, let me rephrase that. He doesn't begin his ministry in chapter 6. His ministry began back in chapter 1. He has this encounter after he's already been preaching, after he's already been ministering. Isaiah 6, 1-5, listen to the words here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, well, this is a great place to be. I'm so glad I'm here. I said, I deserve to see this, to witness this. That's not what Isaiah says. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, or for I am undone. And I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is holy, holy, holy. And that's the superlative. He is the holiest. There is none more holy than God. He is separate. He is distinct. He is righteous. He is morally good. He is God. And what does the prophet, the one who speaks for God, say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I'm as nothing. I recognize and I see the evil of my lips, of my tongue, of my words. Not only that I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Do you have any idea how holy God is. How righteously wrathful He is. Do you not know, friend, that God, who is the standard of every virtue, that He who is omnipotent could unmake you? Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9. Psalm 29, verses 3 to 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! The voice of the Lord shakes the very foundations of this world. And you, you would address the majestic one with your lips? You would speak against his creation? You would dare question him in anything? I dare say, and when I say this, I mean this as much for myself as for you. And for those who hear this word in the scripture. That if we contemplated, if we had a firmer understanding of the holiness of God, I do believe more of our worship, more of our time together would be silent. If we were truly gripped with the holiness of God, we would shut up and sit down and be quiet. 
If God showed his glory in the churches in this land, there would undoubtedly be trembling and fear. What about you? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, because we speak of the Lord God with flippant words. Uh, The next time you watch a TV show, a movie, YouTube video, TikTok, whatever, see how many times they use the name of the Lord in vain. See how many times they use Jesus as kind of uh, as a placeholder for ums and ahs. They would take the name of the Holy One and use it in such a flippant way. They have no understanding of what they do. But you need to. You must. We speak words of blessing in one moment and then we walk out that door. Maybe we don't even get as far as the door. And we speak cursing against those made in the image of God. We speak cursing against those who are God's own people. Those who Christ Jesus died for. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these things ought not be so. He finishes with some more images for us, right? In verses 11 through 12, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Right? If you're, if you go out and you see a spring is bitter water coming out of one side and fresh water coming out of the other side, uh, drinkable water from one side and undrinkable water from the other side, does it pour forth sewer, sewage and fresh water? No. It's not how springs work. Either it's drinkable or it's undrinkable. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Right? No. Right? That's, that's simple gardening. Right? We know that. Can a grapevine produce figs? If your grapevine produces figs, you don't have a grapevine. You have a fig tree, right? It's not a vine, it's a tree. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. These things can't be. It's See, here's the reality. It's not only that such double-tonguedness should not be. It really is a matter of it cannot be. It cannot be that a Christian would let pour from his mouth hate and vitriol, lying and gossiping, for that is like a fig tree bearing olives. That is like going to a saltwater pond and taking a big old glass of it and drinking it down and finding, oh no, actually that's fresh water. It cannot be. It cannot be that someone who has been saved by the grace of God would let such bitter saltiness pour forth when flowing from within that person ought be living waters. And again, this is not to say that a Christian will not speak words that offend or wound. There are times, many times, when that may be the case. Indeed, some of what I have said today may have wounded you. But the Christian ought wholeheartedly use words to build up. Words of fresh water are words that lead to life. They are words that direct us to the living water. John 7, 37 to 38. John 7, 37 to 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
James here writes of the nature of the tongue because though small, it directs the course of life. And what we find with the tongue is that it is, as every member of our natural body, corrupted by sin. Its impulse is like that of the evil one himself, the father of lies. But understand James's point. The tongue is an evil, a poison, a pretentious boaster. It is a salt pond in the desert. Which when you're in the middle of the desert and you're dying of thirst, a salt pond is worthless and harmful. And understand that we have a desert around us. Death. And we have people who are dying of thirst. And the last thing they need is another salt pond. They need the living waters. The Christian, it, it is, it ought not be that we speak blessing and cursing. It ought not be that we have no control over our tongue. It ought not be. God has redeemed us and he has redeemed the members of our body, including our tongues for better purposes. He has saved us that we might no longer sin against him, though we know that ultimately that will only happen in heaven. We must not be satisfied, however, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the loose use of our words. We must not allow hatred to spew forth. We must not allow lies and gossip to spring out of us. We must not allow the consuming fire of sinful words to burn and blaze. The Christian ought wholeheartedly use words to build up. That's your call. That's your call in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, then you are called to speak the truth in love. You are called to speak true words. Words that are matched with right action. Right, Not just talk not just empty talk but indeed and in truth you are called to speak reconciliation when the world would divide you are called to speak forgiveness when your natural inclination is nothing but to speak bitterness you are called to build up when the unbridled tongue would rather cut and tear and destroy and when you fail in this when you see something of the holiness of God, confess your sins. Use your words to speak truth anew because that's what it means to confess. It means to speak the truth of whatever it is that you have done. To admit to God the truth of what He has already declared of your sin. So confess your sins to God and find His forgiveness. For if we say we have no sin, we lie. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So pray to Him. Ask Him to give you control of your tongue. Maybe this is something that you've long struggled with. Errant words, sinful words, angry words, hateful words, quick to speak and slow to listen. Well, pray. Ask God to help give you control over your tongue. Ask Him to watch over your words. Pray those words of David's from Psalm 141.3. Memorize that and pray it. Psalm 141.3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And rather be silent than speak sin. Rather be thought to be dumb than curse 
with the mouth you bless God with. For some of you hearing this, you may well have a glimpse of the problem of your sin. And it's not just a matter of you doing something wrong here or there. The problem is that you are a sinner. Your sin stains the whole course of your life. From beginning to end, there is nothing but sin. The problem of your sin is the problem of your tongue. You fail to honor God with your lips. You fail to honor God with your life. Of the wicked, the psalmist writes that God says this in Psalm 50, 19 to 21. Psalm 50 19 to 21, the psalmist writes, God says, You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I, God says, have been silent. You thought that I was like one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. What's the point there? We can spew all kinds of hateful vitriol. We can we can slander and lie. We can use our words for evil. And it may seem that God is silent. And it may seem that God is pleased with such language. But understand, He will rebuke. And He will lay the charge of our words against us. What is the result of such sin? What does God do with those who fail to honor him with their lips? He will pour out his holy wrath. He will let burn the righteous consuming fire of his justice. You will understand what fiery words are. Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters. And right there we could say, well, that's a pretty bad list. And then listen to this next one. And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You will be cast forever from the good presence of God to suffer under his righteous wrath for all eternity. This is holy justice from a holy God against an unholy person, you. But Christ Jesus came. He bore the wrath of God on the cross for the sake of sinners such as you. He bore the curse so you may not. And what remains for you, friend, is to look to Christ Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Turn to God. Seek His grace and mercy. Confess as Isaiah did. Woe is me. I'm undone. And believe that He, for it is alone He who can purge you of your sin. Trust in the work of Christ Jesus. Trust in the Son of God and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. The scripture is clear. And then praise God. Praise Him with your lips. And seek no more to spew forth sinful saying. Speak words true. Speak words love. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, We pray that you would forgive us, Lord. God, I pray that you would forgive me for how quick I am to use my tongue for for evil purposes. God, to, to commit sin, to entice others to commit sin. Father, how quick I am to curse those created in your image. How quick, Lord, we are to sin with our lips, to speak words of hate. 
And Father, though it may not be something we oft think about, Lord God, we we confess that it is true what your word says. God, we confess the truth of your judgments. God, we confess that though we may stay clear of great lies, evil falsehoods, yet how quick we are to speak white lies and count them as a little thing. Father, we confess our sins before you that we may be forgiven. God, that we may find in you the forgiveness that you have promised to us in Christ Jesus. God, we look again anew to to Christ and, and plead his work on the cross. We plead his resurrection from the grave. We plead his ascension into heaven at your right hand. God, as your word says, we we depend upon for our very lives the intercessory work of Christ. We depend upon your Holy Spirit, O God, to utter groanings too deep for words when we so often know not what to pray. Lord God, forgive us for the sinful use of our words. And Father, set a guard. Set a guard over our mouths. Set a set a watch over the door to our lips. Father, give us control of our tongues. That way you may use them for only those purposes you have created us for and called us unto. May our words praise you always, Lord God. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you. Who don't know the right use of their words. God, we pray you would have mercy upon them. And put in their mouths. The confession. The confession they need. the words of faith in Christ Jesus. Regenerate their hearts, O Lord, that they would speak such. And God, help us to use our words to to speak the message of reconciliation unto this dead world around us. God, we pray you would be praised in us, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. For you are worthy of nothing less. We thank you, Father, for your grace, for the mercies of Christ, for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray this all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.